0: This week on Dig Me Out,
1: there's just a lot of a lot of missed opportunities on this record. Cuz there's not a lot that's bad, but there's not a lot that's great either.
0: Tim and Jay review Psychic Hearts by Thurston Moore.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host Tim Minichi, and joining me as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 197, 197 of season four of this podcast. We are inching ever so closely to number 200, the big 200. Excited about it? Oh, Yeah. Can, contain myself. I can tell by your pregnant Are we talking about what we're, we're to, doing for
2: that
1: uh, We've mentioned it um, oh, Okay But uh, you know we've joked around That we're going to do Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 By Guns N' Roses So uh,
2: Hell we're going to do it You know it. what they say about You know what they say about things you joke around with Too much
1: Right Poke your eye out kid
2: That's Something right like that. <laughs> That's what oh, it is. They become a reality.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. We got we got dared into it, and um, like the dumb kids we are, we accepted the dare. So we're gonna mm. go uh, track by track through uh, *Usual Illusion* one and two. So if you've got four hours to spare, uh, get ready. It's coming. We're only gonna spend thirty seconds on each song, though. That's the thing. We each get thirty mm. seconds to make our make a point about each song, and then we have to move on. And. Uh, yeah, I don't know what it's gonna be, and uh, we need to line up some special guests. Could you call Axel Rose and <laughs> um, How do you spell that? A X E L or Buckethead? Is he still in the band? Is that gentleman still in the band? Does he still play the guitar?
0: Hmm.
1: Chicken or is it Chickenfoot? No, Buckethead, Chickenfoot. Who's the guy? Didn't they have a chicken guy in there somewhere?
2: Bumblefoot.
1: Bumblefoot. Bumblefoot chicken head. No, wait a minute. Bucket head. I'm getting confused. Who's the guy who plays with a KFC bucket on his head? That's Buckethead. That's Buckethead. Right? So what does does Bumblefoot play with bumblebee slippers on? Is that what No, that he
2: plays a fretless uh, double neck guitar. Which in Guns and Roses should be It's just ridiculous.
1: I don't understand what that is. What is a fretless double neck guitar? How do you have no frets on a guitar? It's a fretless how you, guitar. How do you know what nacks. you're playing if there's no fret? It's anarchy.
2: Know. You don't need to know. Who invented such a thing? You just feel it. You just feel it out. Oh, my God. People. Yeah.
1: Let's not give up on frets just yet. I think we need them. I'm
2: pretty sure the band did just fine with Les Pauls and uh, ES-335s or whatever they played. Yeah. The first time around. I'm not quite sure why that instrument was needed to replicate the sound of a gold top less Paul but whatever
1: it's funny that you mentioned instruments Jay because uh, we're going to be discussing an artist that is connected to a particular instrument that's Thurston Moore Mm. and he is connected to the Fender Jazzmaster Uh, he owns I guess quite a few of them last I heard it was like 50 Jazzmasters Um, Mm. and if if you want to read about you can go on the internet and find out about how he got all those Jazzmasters I'm I'm going to tell you, he, he's not paying the current market value for those guitars because they're quite expensive. There's actually a Thurston Moore mm. uh, Fender Jazzmaster model that you can buy, which is pretty cool. They also made a, Re- a Lee Ronaldo model um, recently, I think 2011 or 2012. There's also a Jay Massis model, which I, uh, I've been eyeballing recently. They're pretty cool. But uh, I think at the end of the show, this is sort of impromptu, maybe we should have a discussion about artists who are tied to particular instruments or particular guitars from the 90s. Can we do that? Mm. Is that possible?
2: Uh, I suppose we could riff on that. Just came to me. It's it's becoming more than maybe there was. I don't know. I think there's a lot of them now.
1: I think so, too. But I mentioned Thurston Moore, we're going to review his first solo album, uh, Psychic Hearts from 1995. He's got a new record out called The Best Day. Comes out, I believe, today. So uh, we figured this was the best day to do a, a Thurston Moore album. How about that? How's that segue pun at the same time? Uh, for those of you not familiar with Thurston Moore, let's do a little history of the band.
0: History of the band.
1: Thurston Moore was born in Coral Gables, Florida in 1958, but he was raised in Bethel, Connecticut. He enrolled at Western Connecticut State University, uh, but ended up not going to college and instead moved to New York City to join the early uh, post-punk, no-wave, whatever you want to call it, scene that was going on there. So he was briefly in a hardcore punk band called Even Worse with a gentleman named Jack Rabbit would go on to start the big takeover magazine he joined lee Ronaldo in uh glenn bronca's guitar orchestra learning experimental techniques and those two would cross paths cross path uh years later um he originally formed sonic youth although they'd played under different names before that with kim gordon in 1981 And in June of that year, they played a noise fest, which uh, Glenn Branca's guitar ensemble was playing, and it included Lee Ronaldo. So after the two bands played their respective sets, uh, Thurston Moore said to Lee Ronaldo, hey, why don't you join our band? And he did. And I'm not going to go into the whole history of Sonic Youth, because that's quite a long history, but let's just say between 1981 and 2011, which is 30 years, 31 years, um, Sonic Youth released 15 albums and made a, dove, a, a number of different drummers and additional musicians, guitar players. Sometimes they are up to three guitar players. Um, and then outside of uh, Sonic Youth during that time, I mentioned that uh, Thurston Moore released his first solo album in 1995. Then um, his second, Trees Outside the Academy in 2007, Demolished Thoughts in 2011, and then the new one, The Best Day in two thousand. 14, and he's worked with a number of musicians outside of Sonic Youth, such as Yoko Ono, Richard Hell and Robert Quine, or Quinn of the Voivods, or Voidoids, excuse me. Uh, DJ Spooky, Nels Klein, before he was with Wilco, REM, Mike Watt, and many, many other uh, musicians. And then Sonic Youth themselves put out not just those albums, but they put out a number of experimental releases on indie labels, and EPs, and singles, and whatnot. So there's quite a bit of history, or in the Thurston Moore discography to check out. So that's it. That's the history of Thurston Moore. If you would like to suggest an album for us to review, please visit our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. Uh, as we recorded this episode, we did not have any Facebook feedback to. Pass along, so we're gonna just skip that part and jump right into the review. Or actually before we do that, Jay, um Thurston Moore Sonic Youth. Do you own any Sonic Youth albums?
2: I don't. Only familiar with the band in terms of well, you know, an occasional video or some sort of song heard something, you know what I mean? Just peripheral. Gotcha. Never spending time with them, no albums.
1: Is that just did did things not rub you the right way, or was it just a band that you just never got around to?
2: I I don't know. i say it didn't. It just didn't interest me. I guess. Gotcha. You know, I don't know. There's a lot of bands like that. Just maybe didn't think I get it, or you know, just just didn't appeal to me some for some way.
1: Sonic Youth was always one of those bands that obviously got mentioned during the '90s as being an influence on a lot of alternative rock in the '90s. So and working at the radio station we got. I think the first album that I remember getting was Washing Machine was the name of the uh, Sonic Youth album, and it had a song called The Diamond Sea that we played um, and some other songs. And I remember playing this album at the studio. And then I don't really remember being into Sonic Youth, and then they put out an album in the 2000s. Um, can't remember the title of it right now. Um, might have been the nurse or something like that. But uh, there was a couple songs that I, I dug. Um, off that one, and I've I've kind of in bits and pieces gone back and checked out various records. I remembered the there was a video for a hundred percent off of the Dirty album, which was their major label uh, release for DGC. Their I think their first one, or or, or one of the early ones, and uh, okay. I think that was the album that had like it was the first time they were writing like concise songs and. Um, I've, they're a band that they'll pop up on Sirius XM lithium channel and, you know, an individual song here or there will pop up and up. will be like, oh, this is cool. But I've never been like, I need to go dive into all the records right away. I'm kind of with you where I'm like, if it's on, it's on, but I'm not necessarily dying to, uh, check out other stuff. So it'll be interesting yeah. to talk about, uh, this record and what we think of it. Uh, what uh, worked for us and what did not work for Thurston Moore's debut solo release, "Psychic Hearts" from 1995. Let's get into it. Jay, tell me something. Yes, I can hear you get firing up there. Tell me something that no. worked for you.
2: I just took a breath. Hold. I, th- um, I thought you were get- getting
1: worked. loaded in the cannon there from some some <laughs> feedback. <laughs> Putting one in the chamber. Put one in the chamber.
2: Um, Something that worked for me. I, I guess the the guitar playing in some ways is, isn't is exactly what I expected. Although that doesn't mean uh, I still didn't like aspects of it. I think the record starts off with a couple of very interesting takes on guitar riffs. Um, they're sort of like more like guitar lines that mix major minor chord or major minor sort of scale in an interesting way. So you kind of get this cool, like, I don't know, it feels indie and upbeat, but then also kind of take a dark twist all within the same kind of riff. Mm -hmm. Um, I dig that. And those pop out here and there on the record. Um, from time to time, there's also some cool, like fractured riff ideas that are pretty interesting, like locked up with drums and kind of frayed and rusty sounding and chopped up um, that are kind of cool. And there's some pretty interesting effects as well on the guitar. Um, there's a couple of spots in it where I don't know he's doing like this it sounds like lasers or something, like
0: do 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 do
2: like <laughs> rapid outer space laser sounds um, in a couple of songs. I kind of expected that sort of thing
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, in terms of like experimenting with effects and pushing the boundaries there. So that was kind of cool to hear. I guess that's the part of the record that I enjoyed the most. How about you?
1: In terms of uh, what I liked, I also agree with the guitar. I liked, I I think the main thing that I liked is from listening to you know sampling various albums over the years um and and trying to you know get a little beyond just a single or two um there were a lot of albums where i just had i could not connect with them at all um and i mentioned that there were some stuff in the later years that i I liked and i i think that the thing that i like most about this is he's not trying to replicate sonic youth he's clearly writing more concise shorter i want to say his version of pop songs um in mm-hmm. that uh, aside from two tracks you're looking at everything is under 4 minutes out of the first 13 songs 14 songs um, there's clear attempt at writing con- more concise you know not 7 and 8 minute long weird freak out jams and you know he does a lot of stuff with alternate tunings and I think that's what you're talking about with these weird sort of major and minor things, you know, butting up against each other. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like, you know, you know. a lot of times I would listen to the songs, I wouldn't hear the vocals as clearly as I do on this record. So there's a clear attempt at writing, I don't want to say pop, pop is the wrong word, but just a cleaner record, a cleaner sound. And I'm, I'm able to hear all of everything that he's doing on the guitar, which when you have three guitars player players playing sometimes you don't really pick up on what each guitar player is doing. It's just this massive guitar, um, you know, swirling around. So I'm able to like hear all these like weird chord phrasings and fingerings. And sometimes he gets a little repetitive. Uh, He, he can drive a riff into the ground, but usually whatever he's driving into the ground is something that I haven't heard before. I, I don't know that he plays like a normal chord, that you and I would think of as like, you know, like a barred G or something like that on this record at all. Mm -hmm. Like these all sound like invented riffs and invented chords. Um, And in a lot of instances, like on songs like Patty Smith, math scratch or um, feathers or staring statues, he's able to take the slight weirdness and energy of some of that Sonic U stuff. And in, you know, like I said, create this almost like pop uh, in an alternate universe sort of sound. songs blend his weird guitar stuff but put his vocals high enough in the mix that you can actually hear the melody of what he's singing it creates just these kind of weird interesting short little pop rock songs I think those three that I mentioned the times are like 243 220 and 234 which works for me on in this element
2: it's interesting you bring up the um, the more concise or cleaner version um, or attempt to write in that way. I didn't know how to evaluate that necessarily because I'm not familiar enough with Sonic Youth other than, like I said, more more reputation than anything. I've heard mm-hmm. things here and there, but it's mostly based on a reputation. So I wasn't sure if like this was pretty close to what they would do or not. Um, obviously, it sounds like it isn't. So my take on it was actually pretty similar to yours, I guess. I definitely did hear and it's somebody attempting to write in a more pop format. Um, yeah. that's the way I interpreted it. Um, I just, I didn't know if I was interpreting correctly, which I apparently I was. Um, I, I would be a little, I don't know. I was a little more, uh, disappointed by that, I guess, than I thought I would be. Normally I like that, um, approach by artists who tend to be experimental. You know, I like to hear when they, spend time exploring the limits and then they take a break from that and they try to figure out how to make that more mainstream that usually appeals to me for some reason in this instance it it seemed i don't know maybe half-hearted like or not fully committed to it or uh, just not resolved you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. it didn't quite go far enough for me to be worth it so it's kind of a, a lot of the record for me kind of sits in this weird middle ground where it's attempting to be that uh, more mainstream, but it still has um, an approach that instead of it coming off as like like experimental flourishes or phrasings or it kind of sounds a little like amateurish instead of being mm. like the mix of the two. Um, I actually like on the record where it probably. I think the the first two songs on the record Seemed to, for me to be the most like successful In terms of being more like Just an alternative rock band Not the, Taking the experimental part out And I was down with that Out of the middle of the record, I think it was in. It falls into a lot of um, I don't know this middle territory that's not quite resolved. And then you get to a song like "Feather," like track nine, and it sort of has a has a chord progression that's you know, and, and a vocal that's indie rockish. But then it does this cool thing where it goes into this um, this build. That incorporate in the in the build lasts I don't know a minute or so. It incorporates the riff, the verse, you know, progression back in at times, and it it just gets a little bit more like experimental in terms of using things that were seemingly familiar and then kind of deconstructing them and putting them back together and resolving it. Um, And I kind of that made sense to me in terms of if you're gonna do. You know experimental artist tries mainstream that was a way to make that all work and that kind of made sense to me Mm -hmm. um and then tranquilizer was another track where it's more just focused on the guitars like the vocal just gets out of the way um it's in there but it's not like a focal point of the song of the of the song I described earlier it's it's a riff that's like kind of broken and taped together again it's, mm-hmm. it sounds like uh and it emerges out of this weird intro thing and it's just to just appreciate the instrumentation um and the breakdowns and and what's going on with the playing and and uh so that worked for me too so i found a lot of it like i said to be in this middle ground that was just not satisfying um It also reminded me, I don't know, for some reason, I kept thinking of Nirvana when I listened to this record, especially especially Kurt Cobain. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I'm just familiar with him being a fan of this band and, and, and of this artist, but I don't know. I just kept hearing like little, especially early on in the record, just little things here and there, little notes or phrases or ways of playing that just kept reminding me of them, especially, like, the in in utero era, where they're Mm -hmm. um, less punk and more, like, dark, right? and also more, like, I don't know, that was around, like, the acoustic album era, too, where it started to get, like, they showed this, like, weird, folky kind of aspect of them, too, that still was also very dark, um, unless of, like, the early era of the band, which was... Just more pure energy, Um right. That era of, of Nirvana came out to me. Um, I don't know if that era of Nirvana is kind of inspired by uh, Thurston Moore and uh, Sonic Youth or or what, but there was something in this record that I kept thinking of them. Did, am I alone in that?
1: No, and it honestly, it it really makes me think about the fact that how much better of a of a songwriter in the in the pop sense that Kurt Cobain was like if, if you had just given him these music beds and taken the vocal out mm-hmm. I would have loved to what he, hear what he could have done with this vocally I think he would have come up mm-hmm. with some really cool melodies and some really cool lyrics that I think that that's always been my detachment from Sonic Youth is that I don't find Thurston Moore to be a very interesting I guess the word is melodicist, or I don't know if that's what it is, but I don't like, yeah. I never thought, find myself humming along to any of his melodies. Um, mm-hmm. you know, he kind of plays around with the way he delivers his vocal on this, you know, queen bee and her pails has a totally different vocal delivery than, uh, you know, cherry's blues or something.
2: But and, lot melodically it's, it's landlocked to the, um, the riff to the yeah, guitar. Yeah, and
1: that's part. what happens a lot right. with him is he, he lock, he's either doing like a complete lock-in with the riff or he's doing like sort of a breathy vocal over top of it and like it's sort of floating on yeah. top. But a lot of the times when he gets locked in to a riff, he never gets out of it for any sort of a chorus. And I think that was the one mm-hmm. of the letdowns for me is that there's these, almost all of these songs start out with something really cool, and aside from the mm-hmm. you know the instrumentals that are on the record, I was just like, oh, I can't wait to hear the chorus, and almost none of the time does it deliver. You almost stay mm-hmm. into the, locked into that whatever that vocal is for almost the entire song. I mean, there are entire songs where like psychic hearts, I think it's two chords and it doesn't change. And while that can be cool, if you do a really interesting vocal on top, I don't, he doesn't pull it off and maybe he needs those collaborators to help him pull that off. Mm -hmm. But there's just a lot of, a lot of missed opportunities on this record because there's not a lot that's bad. But there's not a lot that's great either, and from mm-hmm. artists who are considered, you know, pretty, pretty important in the in the alternative rock, you know, annals. This is it's a little yeah. bit of a letdown.
2: Yeah, I guess to um, to build on that and tie it back to some of the points I was making about that, the section of the record like Psychic Hearts and and on. It, all those songs grab me when they start. You know, there's something interesting there. My expectation, I guess, is that they're either going to stick to like you're saying, like pay off with a chorus of some kind or just be really weird. Like mm-hmm. go to places I didn't expect. And they don't do either of those two things. And ultimately, I don't know, to me, and I don't speak for you, but ultimately they end up being boring,
0: <laughs> which is yeah. the
2: worst possible, you know. Uh, I would rather have them be like so odd that I'm just like, what is that? Like, what is, why did they do that? That's so strange. It's more of just like, oh, okay, well, I kind of saw that coming. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, or they've been playing this for a while. Okay. Uh, so that's kind of where I was thrown. Uh, I yeah. didn't expect. I, I guess I didn't ex- expect it to be challenged by somebody from Sonic Youth in terms of, you know, what I like and, and you know, to do things that maybe were ugly and or sonically, you know, or, or from a note standpoint, challenging didn't quite make sense or whatever, but or rhythmically time signature or something. But to be bored, I didn't expect that.
1: Yeah, I think what you're getting at is is why I find like a song like Staring Statues to be successful I think that's the song that has, like, you mentioned the, the laser <laughs> sounding guitar riff thing that he's yeah. doing. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's weird and it's unexpected and he's playing, you know, he played, since this was a solo record, he did all of the guitar and all the bass by himself. And I think there's uh, some additional guitar by a guy named, guy named Tim Folgen, but I don't know which songs he played on. But when there's clearly a second guitar doing something weird, that's where it becomes a little bit more interesting. But I'm sure he wanted to steer clear of that. And a lot of it, so it you know, didn't what's funny about, necessarily tie back to Sonic Youth.
2: You know what's funny about that song and the song after it, "Cindy Rotten Tanks," hmm. is I, I think those two songs like go together. Yeah, They're, he's like vocally in the same area, and just, there's something about them that, that make them fit together really well. Um, they kind of sound like Fumi and Chu songs without the big riffs. <laughs> I mean. <laughs>
1: Yeah, especially like the Cindy Rotten took... Tanks does that. It's got that like plotting.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I know
1: he what you're talking about. took the big fuzzy about.
2: guitars out of Fu Manchu and you just had the singer like working with like an indie band or something. Or like a, you know what I mean? And like tur- didn't didn't allow him to use distortion or what have you and tur- tune down or turn down the volume. It, it kind of reminded me of that. some ways i was like oh, okay this is like kind of works for me in other ways i'm like wait a minute this is like fu manchu without the big fuzzy riffs what good is that yeah <laughs> it's like kiss without the makeup
1: <laughs> oh, wait. yeah we don't need to go there
2: or van halen with the finger tapping
1: right exactly there you go uh let me ask you this track 15 Elegy yep. for all the dead rock stars. So, oh. 20 minutes long. Yeah. You know, without that song, uh, what are we looking at? We're looking at a 47 minute album. 14 songs, 447 for minutes. That's not bad. <sighs> but you throw that it's... on there, you're at 67 minutes. Yeah. Can you even judge that song Which... on its own, considering how long it is? Or does it just muddle yeah. the end of the record so much?
2: It just models it. And, and uh, especially, I was a little annoyed that, I don't know, again, tying to my Nirvana reference. And like, didn't this record come out like the year after Kurt Cobain died or something? Or,
1: uh, I mean, it Yeah, I would have. Well, when did Cobain die? Ninety-four? Ninety-three? I can't remember now. Wow. I'm old.
2: So this came out in ninety-five. So based on what this, what this song's titled... I'm, like, going into this thinking, oh, well, maybe this will be, like, really heavy. Like, n- not heavy, like, metal, like, but just, like, emotionally dark, contemplative, emotional, and yeah. And it's three minutes of, like, banging on a chord. And then they kind of go into this broken, weird thing, and then they bang on the chord again, and the whole end of the song is just, like, weird noise. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... Oh, what a letdown! I mean, based on the "Elegy you know, for All Dead Rock Stars" is the title of the song. You're like, oh wow, okay. This this should be, this should be something worth listening to. If you know, so we set aside the twenty minutes, and then uh, it's really not. It's kind of a let. <laughs> a huge letdown. And then when you combine it in with the record, it's just a killer. Um, I mean, you're at fourteen songs for the record. I mean, some of these are two minute songs, but. Uh, 14 songs and like you said it's 47 minutes that's plenty long yeah i don't know what you're thinking putting a 20 minute song at the end
1: you got space to fill oh my god that's why it's the cds uh yeah it's, it doesn't the, belong uh, on here at all it does it's just it's a waste of it's a waste of space and it could have been its own single that they could have released or ep or something like that it just it just has no purpose on here because it doesn't even fit with sort of the ideology of the rest of the record, which is these short, concise, sort of right. like, tossed-off riffs and, and little rockers that sometimes go somewhere, sometimes don't. And then it just, like, a, you hit a brick wall
2: <laughs> at the end of the yeah. record. And so. I kept playing this album on, on random, and it, it seemed like it played just constantly. I kept going to the song, like... <laughs> like a mosquito was just attracted <laughs> to it. It's like, just get off this song. I should have removed it from the playlist. <laughs> the album
1: and here's the thing. If you're going to do the, you know, quiet, loud, quiet thing. Um, Explosions in the sky does it better than that song. They do yeah. Whole that's the of kind of better. thing I
2: was. Yeah. That's the kind of thing I was expecting to get into with a song. It's 20 minutes long and has that title in the reputation of the artist you know making it I thought I was going to get into something like that like some freak out orchest- or orchestration on like you know fuzz pedals and electric guitars and drums but it's not that at all no
1: let's talk about our overall rating on this record Jay' Were the album better EP or decent single Where do you land?
2: I could be kind and say EP, but I'm not gonna be. I'm well, in a grumpy mood. I'm gonna say a single. Well I mean for me I think it's uh it's you know, pick one song off of here, some of the ones I mentioned and I'd be cool hearing that and and not really be that that curious to uh to go any further.
1: I'm gonna disagree. I'm gonna take this up to an EP. I think there's four solid tracks. That I think could go on an EP. I would take Patty Smith, Math, Scratch, Feathers, Staring Statues, and Cindy, Rotten Tanks. I'd put them on an EP. Um, the rest of the stuff is okay. Um, I think that they could all use just a little bit more time. I think some of them sound undercooked. And maybe that's the way he wanted to do it. That's fine, but it doesn't necessarily work for me. So... Uh, we have a little bit of disagreement. We're both not thrilled with this record. Jay's a little bit tougher on it, and
2: uh, there you go. I think I think the the vocal is it ends up killing it for me. I actually yeah. probably would like the record better if they just didn't want to put a vocal on it. I, it's not necessary.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mentioned at the top Jay about guitar players in the '90s, and I mentioned that you know Thurston Moore is a known jazz master aficionado, and I was trying to think of other musicians from the 90s who are sort of tied to specific guitars um Mm -hmm. you know especially the guitar bands so billy corgan is does billy corgan really tied to it i know i've seen him play a fender strat a lot
2: yeah yeah uh,
1: but i don't know if he exclusively plays a strat
2: that's what uh i bet he has a let me see i bet he has a version of the strat that's his he has a billy corgan fender strat it's funny, and all of them they come, up, you know. It's got the uh, real pickups, Fender Lace or something, some hotter pickup, probably. Yeah, Demarzio pickups in it. Yeah, I would associate that with him. Johnny Marr played a Jaguar. He's one of the few people that. Yeah, like Jaguar.
1: Um, you know, Jay Mass he has his own, jazz master. He's obviously tied to that mm-hmm. instrument, um, and then Kevin Shields from My Bloody Valentine is a is a famous. Jazzmaster aficionado as well it's on the cover of their most famous album loveless so that's obviously the whole shoegaze instrument influence or uh movement is a lot of it is tied to the jazz master because of the tremolo and that guitar was readily right. available for a lot of musicians at that time um but bands like you know pearl jam is another guitar band from that era Oh uh, yeah, no, I don't necessarily think of Mike really McCready or or those guys having specific guitars that they played all the time. I think they probably, you know, they, there was Les Pauls, there were Telecasters, Stratocasters, you know, lots of yeah. Tracks. They
2: played just about anything.
1: Yeah, I think it more depended on the Kirk song. Kurt Cobain
2: played uh, what was Kirk Cobain's? What was it a Strat or no? He played it, a uh, Jag.
1: Well, he played a. They had a Jag Stang after they they made for him. Yeah, which was a Mustang and a Jaguar. Yeah, that was the guitar. And now Dave Grohl has his own guitar, which is a it's a hollow-body guitar with a strat neck, I think. Right. It's, yeah, it's. I don't know. Is it a 335 or something like that? I'm not sure exactly what the guitar is.
2: But it's like his it, own custom. Yeah. That's the shape, yeah. But it's... Uh,
1: but I, could, I couldn't think I of, know, like, you know, the guy from uh, Jerry Cantrell. I don't think of him as
2: yeah, being... Yeah, he's... A, no, he, a, he has a... It's a uh, Charvel, I think. It's like oh. an '80s metal guitar that uh, had one humbucker in the bridge, and he had modified a great deal. And he always used a blocking tremolo. And I mean, he comes from that—that that, everybody in the band came from that scene, like the you know the more the '80s metal scene. So all their instruments and stuff were basically from that era. I'd been modified to do other things and have other sounds and stuff. But yeah, he's got that one signature guitar that I think he either still plays it or he has one that looks like it. It's got like a weird, it's like a cream color and it's got like a pattern painted on it. It
1: doesn't seem like guitarists from back then or in the 90s were as tied to a particular instrument overall as say, you know, some of the classic guitar gods, you know, Hendrix, Jimmy Page, Eric Clapton... Although Clapton started out playing an SG, and then he switched um, to Fender after that. He wasn't necessarily known. I
2: think on the Jerry Kintra, thing, think G&L makes the guitar now. Like, he has his own signature G&L guitar, but I want to say the original. was Maybe it was a G&L. Gotcha. Looking at some photos, but uh, yeah.
1: Do you think that that's coming back now? I mean, with guys like Jack White?
2: Well, I definitely think you associate it more now than probably we did at the time, because it's such a huge marketing thing like mm. you know for those guys to get deals um it's huge they all want to do it and then it seems like the manufacturers really want to you know it's another outlet for them to market the guitar so it seems like almost everybody has a signature guitar now that you can buy i mean even guys that are like marginally known right um or they're signature endorsed. Guitars. Yeah. Well, yeah, but, I mean, I'm surprised how many of them actually have a particular model that their name is on that you can play, you know what I mean? Um, so there's that association that's being created, you know, it's more visible now. And, and, and then once those artists, you know, do that, they're sort of, for their own marketing purposes, they tend to use the guitar more, <laughs> you know? It's like they don't, they'd be kind of dumb to be switching around all the time when you're trying to, when you get a cut of all the guitars that are sold your names on it, so there's definitely a tendency to do that more um at least be visible about it and f- to identify it at the time I'm trying to think at the time if I like I kind of realized it I remember like I remember when the pumpkins came out like playing around with you know heavy strat sounds and heavy martial sounds and you know trying to think about that as it mm-hmm. you know as a guitar player and The different, like the early phases of Pearl Jam, you know, with with more of the Les Paul classic sound, and obviously the Nirvana, you know, kind of using, brought, bringing like the idea of using like pawn shop guitar, you know what I mean, like hand me down right instruments, and you know, making cool sounds with that. I had a Jaguar as a kid, and when they were not (laughs) cool in any way. So for me, it was kind of cool to see artists starting to use the Jazzmaster and the Jaguar again. Do you still have that guitar? It's because I got one. Yep. I have a yeah 70s Jaguar that obviously when I was in the 80s, and, you know, playing guitar, it was not cool to have a a Jaguar. But no. then in the 90s it became kind of cool again, so I appreciated that. So I noticed anybody who was playing the Jazzmaster or Jaguar just because of the I was familiar with the shape and right. always looking for people and there's so many more manufacturers now, you know what I mean? Like Oh yeah. There's way more opportunities for artists to you know have their own signature guitar and kind of own it. Not very many Flying V's in the 90s.
1: Uh Lenny Kravitz, that's the only one I can think of. Yeah. That's about it. He was the only guy and he was doing it retro style. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't I can't think of a people who strayed away in the 90s from those like sort of standard models of Telecaster, Stratocaster, Les Paul, SG. Although uh, Greg Dooley was known in the 90s, he was playing that black telly. Uh, and then in the, recently hmm. he's moved to a hollow body um, in the last couple of years. So, but he was he was playing that telly for a long time.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of like uh, some of that bands we like pay attention to a lot like catherine wheel i don't i don't know what they played Strat, i guess
1: yeah those guys played strats there's a good website if you ever want to check it out uh you can find out a lot about guitar players from different eras guitargeek.com it gives you uh, you can look people up doesn't have everybody but you can look up bands or individual musicians uh, guitarists and uh see what their not only what their guitar was but their whole rig so, you can see what amps they were using, what pedals, how they had it, what their chain was in terms of how the pedals were set up. And if they had different, um, you know, d- like I'll give you an example. Adam Franklin from Swerve Driver is known for Jazz Masters. And he ran two different amps on stage and he had a switch between the two amps. So, if he was playing certain songs, mm-hmm. he's playing through a, a Marshall stack. And then in other songs, he would play through a Vox AC30. And then uh, the, you got to look, <laughs> the one for um, Jay Masters is insane. He has like six different cabinets all hooked up at one time.
2: I'm seeing 96. Is that the one you're looking at?
1: I don't know which one, what, what era it's from, but he has—he just had an insane amount of amps and pedals and everything. Just so many different lines going to different places. It's like I don't even know how, how you, I don't even yeah. know how you get to that point where you're like, this is my setup. Like it must take two hours to get that thing set up every time you have to play.
2: Well, obviously he's not setting this shit up right yeah that's why you hire people to do this stuff exactly <laughs> but then it's awesome to see like i mean seriously angus young is he plugs an sg into a marshal mm-hmm. that's it you know what i mean like that's honestly all he does everybody is always you know he's got the i i think probably he um the two um he and, and malcolm have some of the best tone that's ever been recorded and that's it so that's why
1: i play an sg a lot of that
2: yeah a lot of that has to do with your technique i mean tone has as much to do with your your hands as it does the stuff you're using but
1: absolutely it is
2: funny to to browse a site like this where it gets insane you can totally geek out on what some of these guys put together and then you go to others and you're like wow that's that's seriously it like and then you'll have guys like, yeah, I put a real strip back, and you look at what they're using, you're like, that's not strip back, dude. <laughs> like, you're still using five effects and two amps, and that's not – I didn't yeah. know the site was still around. Still going. This has been around since, like, the late 90s, I think.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, if if you have a, a musician that you'd like to mention, a guitarist, bass player, whatever, that uh, you think uh, has an interesting tie to an instrument from the 90s, you know, comment on it, and uh, if you like what you heard, leave us some positive feedback over at iTunes. One ninety seven is in the books; it only means uh, one thing. One ninety eight is coming up next. It means we're three away. One ninety eight, one ninety nine, 3 away. Get ready for it, folks. Get your get limber because it's coming. All right, for Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. Back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.
0: Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages.